Anyone willing to pray for Peru this week? I, I love just seeing the different cultures, and it reminds us of how big this world is, and that God is bigger than Southwest Michigan. Amen? Uh, uh, let's, let's begin today with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for your word. And Lord, I pray that we would approach it today as we should every time we open your word with a reverence for it, understanding that this is communication from you to us. I pray that we would understand it today, that we would apply it, we would reverence it, and that it would change our lives. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Picture this scenario for a moment. Um, go back all the way... Uh, to the time of David, when, when King David was not a king yet, he was a little boy, and the Israelite army stands at, on a hill with a valley connecting them to their enemies on the other side of that valley. And the valley was called Ephes Damim, and, and the Philistines were on the other side of, of, the, of the valley here in, in view of each other. In fact, they could even speak to each other. They were close enough to speak to each other. And uh, a Philistine champion named Goliath a huge champion named Goliath stands out there and he's hurling insults at Yahweh, the God of Israel. Meanwhile, on the other side, what, what are the Israelites doing? They're cowering in fear. Just cowering in fear. What's wrong with that picture? In fact, if we fast forward just a little bit to about 2,000 years ago, we see Pilate. Pilate was put into a predicament where he had to choose to, to allow one person to go free. On one hand, he had Jesus, whom he had just tried and found innocent, versus Barabbas, who was probably uh, a fairly well-known thug. In fact, Barabbas isn't even a name. Barabbas is a title that's given to someone. It literally means the son of the father. And uh, so it'd be comparable to, like, the godfather, right? This is a title. This is a known thug, and he has a choice. Do I let this... Thug, go free, or do I appease the masses and give, the, and, and give them Jesus to be crucified? What, what, what do I do? And of course, you know what he chose to do. Or fast forward, uh, take, uh, this might date me, but I, I remember a little bit of what was called Beatlemania. They say, how, where is Pastor Dave going today, right? I know many people, <laughs> Beatlemania, right? I mean, where, where you have hundreds and, and thousands of, of young women who would literally push past lines of security guards just in hopes that, that they might get a small glimpse of one of the Beatles as they drove into the, the stadium wherever they were going to perform for that night. One more scenario. Fast forward to today. How about a young girl young teenage Christian girl who has made a commitment never to date an unsaved guy. And yet she's struggled to become popular at school and all of a sudden the most popular guy in school asks her out. And she gives up and throws away the commitment that she had made because she feels like this is, this is my chance to be in. This is my chance to feel accepted. What do all of these scenarios have in common when you look at them? Every single one of these has to do with what I call people worship. The Bible calls it fear of man. We read all through the scriptures that, um, about the fear of man. And, and I'll tell you, the, the, this fear of man is something that keeps us from understanding what it means to worship the true God. 
fear of man. Why the reason I call it people worship is because the word worship literally means worthship. And the idea is we ascribe worth to people that belongs only to God. And when you think about it, in all of those situations, that's what's going on. Daniel, in, in, uh, in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, Daniel addresses this issue. And, and we, we start to see the problem with this type of thinking. And there's a lot that we can learn about it. So if, we, if you turn to Daniel chapter 2 in your Bibles with me, I want to recap just a little bit of what's going on in Daniel's life. He's gone through multiple tests. His faith has been put into the fire, so to speak. First, when he was carried off to a foreign land and forced to follow uh, false religions, and they asked him to eat the king's meat, his faith was put to the test. He was to eat things that Leviticus told him he could not, and he was forced, forced to choose, and he chose to do what was right, and God worked him through that situation. We have a second test with Nebuchadnezzar's vision. And you might remember the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had. And, and, and he was going to wipe out all of the, the, the magi, all of the, all of the wise men and the astronomers and everyone because they couldn't give an answer. And, and so, so he had a choice to run or he had a choice to turn to God. And he and his friends turned to God and God miraculously gave him the vision. And, and, and God did that. And then that led him to another opportunity. He had an opportunity to steal the glory for that. And as we learned a couple of weeks ago, he, he was unwilling to steal the glory, and he gave all the glory to God. And so we've seen time after time, Daniel's faith has been put into the fire. And today we're going to begin to see a beginning of that fourth test. So let's look at Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 46, if you could follow along with me. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel. And commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and the revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Look at that. Say, wait a minute. What just happened here? Remember the situation. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that was haunting him. And he refused to tell it to anyone because anyone could make up an interpretation. He needed to know a real interpretation. So, so what does he do? He, 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 he finds Daniel who says, I can give you not only the interpretation, but I can give you the dream. Daniel does that and the king is impressed. By the way, how many of you would be impressed if someone could tell you what you dreamed, even if you had not told a single soul? I would be impressed, right? I mean, that's a pretty good trick. At least that's what I would think, right? And I look at this and say, what's going on? But did King Nebuchadnezzar understand what we understood when we studied that? I don't think so. Because when you look at it, um, he, he was right about what he said about God, right? I mean, he, he was right what he said about God. Truly, God is a revealer of secrets. Truly, your God is the God of gods. He's the Lord of kings. Are all those things true? Yes. He was right about God, but he was wrong about Daniel. Because did you notice what his response was? What was his response? His response was to command the people to give an offering and incense to whom? Did you, did you catch that on the first verse there? In verse 46? Did you see that? To Daniel. He, he wants, he's giving an offering to Daniel. And so here's a moment to, to recognize that 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 God just did something great, that there is a God who can reveal the secret. By the way, a God who revealed the secret about his empire, about the next empire, the empire that, the empire after that, and someone who was going to come up and raise up an eternal empire. Wow. 
But instead of focusing on God, what does he do? Wow, this is amazing. You, Daniel, or something. In fact, everyone needs to give an offering of incense to Daniel. Do you see a problem with that? And the problem with this thing, he did not understand it. In fact, all of this was in spite of what Daniel said. Do you remember back in verse 30 what Daniel said? He said, King, I'm about to give you the, the dream and the interpretation. And remember what he said in verse 30. He said, but as, as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than any, anyone living. But for our sakes, who make known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. What did he say? King, this has absolutely nothing to do with me. I, I, this does not make me any wiser than anyone else alive. See, Daniel recognized that, but did King Nebuchadnezzar? And the answer to that, I think, well, it's clear in Scripture, is no. And so this exposes uh, some wrong thinking on the part of Nebuchadnezzar. And so what's this er erroneous thought that is exposed here? And that's the idea that God would only choose to use someone if that person was special. Right? Because this is what's going on because... Because he's saying, wait a minute, God would only choose to use Daniel in this way if there's something special about Daniel. That's why Daniel warned him this isn't true. But he believed it anyway, that God would only use you if you're special. I mean, God used Daniel, therefore what? Daniel must be pretty special. Let's worship him. You know, it's, it's hard to worship a God sometimes that, that, uh, uh, that you can't see but we can, we can worship him through what we can see, through, through what God has done. Through, and, and when God uses us, the temptation is, is to start worshiping people for something that God has done. By the way, I hear this all the time. You know, my only desire in life is to be used of God. Have you ever heard that? You know, that's, that shouldn't be your top desire. Think about that. Your top desire should not be to be used by God. Because you know what? God can use anyone he wants. God can use unbelievers. I am convinced that God has used unbelievers to do some pretty great things. Amen? And yet, what we still, we should be seeking is to have a relationship with God. That type of relationship with God where if he chooses to use us, Lord, that's you, not me. And if he chooses not to use us, great. Praise the Lord for what he did through that person or that person or that person. Amen? But when we start start putting the intention back on ourselves, we'd run into problems. And is it true that God would only use a special person? I don't think so. In fact, uh, if you keep your finger here in Daniel, I'd like us to take a quick peek at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is something that Paul said uh, in verse 20 and 21. He says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has, has God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom, did not know God, it pleased uh, God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. See, God is in the process of, of showing the foolishness of the wisdom of the world. In fact, if you skip ahead just a couple of verses in 26 and 27, we read this. For you, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. See what he's getting at? God's not in the business. Of, oh, he doesn't look for someone and say, wow, this is a wise person. I need him on my team. Oh, this person, oh, he's mighty. I need him. Have you, in fact, just the idea of God beginning a sentence with I need 
doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Right? And so, so there's no sense in which God is looking for us saying, oh, wow, you are so special. I, I need you because you're better than other people. No, that's not what the, the way it works. Now, can he call someone who is wise? Or, or Yeah, that's why he says not many, right? But not many mighty, not many no, not many of them are called. It goes on to say in verse 27, but God has chosen what? The foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. See, see God is not in the business of, of choosing people based on how special they are. This is something Nebuchadnezzar did not quite grasp. So here, Daniel points all the glory up to God, and yet Nebuchadnezzar gives the glory to him instead of to God. Now, does this, do these verses sound to you like God only uses the gifted or the talented or the intelligent? No. He uses people who are willing. He, he wants to have a relationship with us. And I'll tell you what, having a relationship with God is way better than being used by him because sometimes if God uses us, it goes to our head. Isn't that true? Well, I see a lot of blank faces out there like, oh, I don't, isn't that true? Yeah. It is. And, and let's be honest, sometimes God doesn't want to use us because he loves us and, and he knows, oh, if I use him in this way, he's not ready for that yet. It's going to go to his head. Let me work on my relationship with him or my relationship with her before, um, before I use him. And you know, all through history, we see God using sometimes the, the last person you'd think of. God was going to do something great. He was, going to, he was going to release all of the Israelite slaves from Egypt. And who does he choose? Moses. He chooses Moses to be his mouthpiece. Moses, who probably had a stuttering problem. Um, a man who, in his own strength, tried to rescue one Jew and it failed miserably. And God says, that's what I'm going to use to free all of the Israelites. Or, or you take David. David came from a no-name family in a no-name town. And he was the youngest of the brothers so with, with such little potential according to the eyes of the world from a fleshly standpoint. He had such little potent potential that when, when the prophet came and Samuel said, I know, I was told by God that one of your children is going to become the king. Even the father said, well, I'll have David go watch the sheep and I'll bring the other kids because there's no way it's David. And God says, that's the one I want to use. The, can we say the runt of the litter? <laughs> God says, I'm going to use him. Or Paul, a pompous persecutor of Christians. I'm going to make him an apostle. Do you begin to understand the, the, the idea that God has behind him? God loves to show the foolishness of pompous wisdom of the world. Doesn't he? And I don't know about you, but that's, that serves as, a, as a, an encouragement to me because God can use me. God can use, uh, can use in spite of our failures. Amen? We have a sovereign God. He doesn't need us. And if we had a God who needed us, we'd all be in trouble. Right? Let's continue. Verse 28 and 29. Back to, to uh, Daniel um, chapter 2. Verse, uh, verse 48 and 49, excuse me. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon <clears throat> and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. By the way, this is what connects the story a little bit to Christmas because 
Daniel was going to have an influence in the wise men, that influence in the wise men actually outlasts Babylon. But some of the religion uh, continues to go forward, and, and not enough that they, were, they didn't all accept Christ. That's, that's not the way, uh, the way it works out. However, those who were seeking, and we never have a number. The Bible doesn't say that there were three kings from Orient. You know the song, We Three Kings of Orient? Uh, it wasn't, wasn't three, they weren't kings, and they weren't from the Orient. Um, <laughs> but good try. I mean, you got good try. Um, but there were magi that came from the east. That part's true, right? Why? Because some of the influence of Daniel came down that when they were observing the stars and they see something different and they, they do the math and, wait a minute, what Daniel said is true, right? So Daniel was given charge over the magi. He's given a great position of leadership. And then in verse 49, in fact, he brings on his friends. Look, uh, it says, Also Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. The gate of the king is where all, it's like the White House of Babylon, right? And so this is where the decisions were made. So Daniel is lifted to a high position. And by the way, who thought they were giving Dan Daniel a, a position like that? Nebuchadnezzar. But what did we just learn in the vision? Who sets up kings? Who puts leaders in their positions? God. And God was doing this. And, uh, and, and so it was God who promoted Daniel and his friends. Now this is where things get interesting. Uh, let's uh, look at chapter 3, verse 1, and we, we begin to see the, the first test. I'm going to read the first seven verses, and then we'll go back through them. Um, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. And he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to uh, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. By the way, you hear that repetition. Nebuchadnezzar set it up. Nebuchadnezzar set it up. Verse 4. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with, with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that time, when all people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, and lyre, and symphony, and with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Wow. Um, here, Daniel is once again forced into a situation where he has to choose between obedience to God or risking his life. By the way, if there's one way you want to get church attendance to, 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 to grow, you tell people, if you don't show up, you'll be cast into a burning furnace, right? I mean, what kind of religion is that? Aren't you glad that no one's forced to be here today? Isn't that nice? We have, a, we have freedom, uh, you know, and, and true religion is not about forcing people into anything. But 
That's a story for another day. But here we have this fourth test. And this is a huge one. This is a doozy, right? And so first I want to talk about, the, first the magnitude of it. Here we have this gold image that we find in verse 1. And it, we read that it's, it's 60 cubits high and, and 6 cubits wide. So to give an idea, since no one here measures any, anything in, in cubits. Anyone have a tape measure in cubits that I could borrow? We don't, right? So in feet, we're talking 87 and a half feet high by 8.75 feet wide. Okay. Now, that's huge, right? I'm, I'm six foot two, right? So this is me. It would, if you took 14 of me and stacked us all on top of each other, we would still fall a little bit short of how tall this structure was. Does that give you an idea? I mean, that's huge. I mean, that makes, there's no way we fit it in this building. I'm not sure how many of me you'd fit in here, but you'd have to well over double that, right? Huge. This, that's just the magnitude of this thing. By the way, people tend to be impressed by the magnitude of things, don't we? we, we in fact, I remember going, I saw the largest basilica in the world. And believe it or not, it's, it's not the one that, that, that you would think. It's actually found in the middle of nowhere in Africa, right? And, uh, and I had a chance to go there, and only one pope's been there, because after he went there and realized it was bigger than the one in St. Petersburg, they, they said no pope will ever come back, right? Because they said it was too proud. But you go, huge, this huge building. They had in, individual air conditioner units in every seat. Man, imagine that. So you could choose your own temp. The place was in- incredible. And I remember hearing the man talk about, about, you know, I come into this glorious place, and I just know that this is... This is a connection to God. Wow. Just the beauty and the, 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 the magnitude of a place like that. Fall short. We, we fall into that, that concept. This is the magnitude. This golden image. I mean, imagine that much gold to cover an image that huge. Must have been a phenomenal thing to see. Then, then there's the multitude. We have this multitude. If we look at verses 2 and 3, it says, The king Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, anyone who's an official in any capacity. And so you've got all this huge multitude of people that, would, that, are, that are told to gather around. And, uh, and so we have this mandate. We have the multitude. We have the mandate. Uh, the mandate that he tells them in verse 4 and 5 and then a herald cried aloud to you it is commanded O peoples and nations and languages that at the time you hear the sound of the horn flute, harp, lyre and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music you shall fall down and worship the golden image um, so when they hear the music they're all to fall down and just worship this, this image do you see a problem with this for some of those officials that we just read about Daniel Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. This is a problem, isn't it? Because for believers to give glory to something that's man-made is to take glory away from God. Make sense? Now they're in, a, they're in a real predicament. Here's the problem. Image worship is really just another form of people worship. Isn't it? Who makes the images? Who makes the idols? All through scripture, when you read in Isaiah, when it, when it condemns idol worship, it's because this is made by man. And you get to a point where you're saying, look what I made. Worship this. 
Image worship is a form of people worship. It's kind of the, the pounding of the chest, like, look what I have made. You know, behold what I have made. And when you see something with that kind of magnitude, we're tempted to fall into that same type of thinking. Wow, look what this person's done. Now today, we don't make some of these, these huge gold structures. I mean, in some places in the world, they do. But when we look at the magnitude of what someone does, the, the magnitude of, you know, to build a beautiful stadium or to, to build a, these huge towers of buildings or to build a palace, and, and we look at all these things and, and we have to say, wow, right? The seven wonders of the world. And we look at that and say, wow, look what people did. Behold the splendor of what man has done. Do you see a problem with that? Now, in this context, if we think about it in context, you, you've, got, uh, you've got King Nebuchadnezzar has just had a vision revealed to him. Of, uh, uh, and, and in that vision, he was the head of gold, right? He was the head of gold. He was the first one. But, but it seems like he almost stopped there in his thinking because if we continue to think about the rest of that vision, that head of gold was going to be replaced by what? By, a, a, by something silver, something that's less valuable, stronger, but less valuable, is going to, t- going to conquer you. That should, be, that should be a humbling thought. Wouldn't you think? Oh man, my kingdom's not going to last forever. Someone else is going to come and take me. No, it's a, it's a humbling thought. In fact, if you continue in the vision, remember God takes a stone that's not carved by any human hands. And, and, and he grows this stone. And this stone flies down and smashes the feet of the whole thing. And then it says that it smashes all, every one of those. Every single one of those empires. What, what's going to happen? They're going to be smashed by that rock. You would think that the king would say, ooh, that's a humbling thing. You mean everything I've created is going to be smashed by God? Then his natural response, if he understood it, would not have been, look what I created. You have to worship what I have created, right? And, and so what do we call this? I mean, it seems like Nebuchadnezzar only heard the part, you are the head of gold. Wow, that's me. I'm the head of gold. Let's create something of gold to show how, how marvelous I am. We call this pride. Isn't that what we call it? We call it pride. You must bow down to worship what I have created. That's pride. Here's the point. Pride causes us to deflect God's glory to the works of men. Sometimes we can deflect God's glory to, to other people, to the, to the people that God uses. Sometimes we can do it to the, works of, to the works of men and the things that men have put together. We've seen this in two contexts now. We've seen him do it towards Daniel and the way he treated Daniel and, uh, and have, trying to get people to worship him. And we see it now that when he's demanding other people to worship what he has created. Both of these are fear of men. Both of these are people worshiping instead of God worshiping. You know, we, there's a lot of forms of people worship that we have today. Uh, one of it would be idolizing. When we idolize a person, I'm talking about idolizing a person. This would be the, the extreme case, Beatlemania, right? That's idolizing a person. But you know what? Maybe not to the same extent, but aren't we all guilty of idolizing people sometimes? Lifting up people because of something that God has done in their lives. I read the testimony of a, of a man who was a, a famous rock singer. And, um, and I read his testimony. And from reading his testimony, 
I have no reason to believe that he did not genuinely accept Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. But when I was asked about church, he said, I tried to go to church, I can't go to church because people will worship me instead of worshiping Christ. Isn't that sad? That even in a church, this new believer who I think is stunted in his growth because he's, he feels he can't go to church because Christians start imagining that. Let, let that sink in. People can come to church and have an, a, a relationship with the creator of the universe and that doesn't get them excited. But if a rock star shows up, whoo! Do you see a problem with that? Who gave every musician their talent? God did. God did. And yet we left people up on a pedestal because of something God's done for them. That's what Nebuchadnezzar did to Daniel. Uh, how about uh, negative peer pressure? When I think of, of the teenage girl who, who, who breaks her conviction to only date believers. Why? Because there's negative peer, peer pressure. What is that really? It's people worship. I will be accepted. I don't need the, I don't, I don't need to be right with God. I need to be right with people. I need, that's a problem. You're giving worth to people. That belongs to whom? To God. And anytime you say, oh, God doesn't supply my needs, I need something else. That is fear of man. The fear of not being accepted. Take Pilate. And he knew that Jesus was innocent. He knew that Barabbas was guilty. So if he's going to have to let one of them free, who should he let free? Jesus. That's a no-brainer. However, he had a mob of people saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Okay. He says, I wash my hands. He literally washed his hands. He said, I wash my hands, and I'll give you Jesus. Crucify him. By the way, the only thing that got clean that day was his hands. He was as guilty as anyone in that crowd. And before, if we're going to point fingers, we've got to point that finger at us. We were as guilty as anyone in that crowd. Or, or fear of failure. You know, fear of failure is what? It's actually a form of people worship. Right? Because, why? Because if I fail, other people will laugh at me. That's why I thought if I should be anything besides being a pastor, I'd want to be a comedian. That way, if you fail, nobody will laugh at you. <laughs> now you can see why I'm not a comedian, right? No, but there's this fear, fear of failure. Why? Because we don't want other people to see us. Boy, if we fail, then other people are going to see us. That is people worship. And I'll tell you, you know what? It's okay if I fail. How many of you have ever failed? Okay. So, so join the crowd in that one, right? We're all failures, right? But I don't want to fail in the eyes of God. And I strive so that one day I can stand before God and have him say, well done. Not my talented and wise worker. Well done, my good and faithful servant. If I hear those words, I'm good. No offense. I don't care what any of you think if God says those words to me. Amen? That's how we should all feel. And, and, and that's that fear of failure. It comes down to people worship. A poor, poor self-esteem in many cases is... And we, we fail to believe what God says about us, that we're made in the image of God. We reflect the, the image of God. That alone should conquer all self-esteem problems. Amen? But if we don't believe that, and why? Because I don't feel like I'm as good as other people. 
Hmm, guess what that is? That's people worship. But you can go on name dropping. Oh, it'd be another. I mean, you can go on and on and on about how much of our problems come down to fear of man, people worshiping. And you might ask uh, the question, Pastor Dave, isn't there such thing as a healthy respect for a person? I mean, are we saying that any time you respect a person that that's sin? No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. And, and in fact, uh, there's a difference though between respect and people worshiping. Respect is when you give honor to a person because of what they've done with what they've been given. What they have chosen to do with what they've been given. People worship is different because you're worshiping a person solely for what God has done. Does that make sense? And, and there's a difference between the two. And, and I think that we fall into, into the problem when we start honoring people because of their talent. Who gave you your talent? God did. We honor people because of their positions of authority. Who gave everybody their position of authority? Whether it's a boss at work or a president of, the, of a country or a king or God. When we, when we honor people because of their accomplishments, who gave them their abilities to accomplish? It's God. And we have to instead, we, we can respect people for the choices they make of what to do with what God has given them. I'll give an example. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite Christian authors. But I don't honor him because he's good at writing. God could have chosen to give that gift to anyone in here. I don't honor him because he sold more books. I don't honor him because he was a, a gifted speaker. And In my mind, I honor him because here is a man who came to Christ kicking and screaming in his own words. And God, he says that God dragged him to salvation. But he humbled himself. And even though he spent years preaching atheism, he went back to his the students and apologized for misinforming them. I can respect that. Does that make sense? I can respect that. Uh, one of the least gifted men I know. That sounds bad. But a man who had mental disabilities, he, he washed dishes at the college. And uh, he had mental disabilities. And, and uh, I don't think he ever made it out of elementary level education. And I remember I would take my tray and he would say, what's your name? So I'd say, it's David. Okay, thanks. And then a little bit, you know, next time I take a tray in when I'm done eating, what's your name? David. And uh, multiple times. And then one day I heard someone else taking their tray. Hey, what's your name? You know, John or, or Craig or whatever. And, they give, and so finally I asked him, why are, you, why are you learning our names? And he said, because I pray for every student in the college by name when I go home. He hasn't been given a lot. I have a lot of respect for that. A lot of respect for that. It's not how gifted he is. It's what we have chosen to do with what God has given us. That's respect worthy. So hopefully we see that difference. So I'm not saying we give honor where honor is due, the Bible says. I'm not talking about that. And you know what? There would have been nothing wrong with Nebuchadnezzar giving honor to, to Daniel saying, Wow, you really stood up for the truth when I was ready to kill you. I mean, that's an honorable thing. Bowing down, worshiping, offering incense, that's a whole different thing, isn't it? That's glory. That belongs to God. We have to be very careful how, how, we, how we do that. So the problem with people worship is that it steals glory that belongs to God. Consider what Paul said in Philippians 3. Concerning all of his great accomplishments. Remember, Paul was a very accomplished man. 
fact, possibly even a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, there, there are some, some arguments to, to say that because when Stephen was uh, stoned, um, it's, he said that he cast his vote. The only ones who vote were the Sanhedrin in that. So in, it's possible he meant that he just was, he was for it. But in either case, he calls himself the Hebrew of Hebrews, the Pharisee of Pharisees. He worked his way up. I mean, he was, he was an accomplished man. But listen to what he says when he's talking about his accomplishments prior to meeting Christ. He says this. It says, but what things were gain to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. All the things I did before, I counted as a loss. I've lost all those things. They mean nothing to me. It goes on in verse 8. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. All the stuff I did before, all the empires that I built, everything I did for me, 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 what do I consider that? Rubbish. Rubbish. You know what rubbish is? Garbage. Let me ask you this. How many of you this week, when the garbage man came and took stuff away from your house, had a little tear come out of your eye like, I hate to see that stuff go. Why? Because it's rubbish. It's garbage. It's stuff, you're actually glad to get rid of it. All of these titles, all of the, the degrees, all of the things that, that, that Paul had earned, apart from knowing Christ, he says, this is just garbage and I am glad to be rid of it. I'm glad to start over with nothing. It goes on to say in verse 9, and be found in him for having my own righteousness, which is, from, which is not from the law, or, or, or excuse me, and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which has come uh, by the God uh, that comes by faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. What did he want more than anything? Just to have an intimate relationship with God. To know Christ. To know the power of his resurrection. And the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death. By the way, that's a big deal. Jesus was crucified. He's saying, oh, wouldn't it be great to be crucified? Then I would know what Christ suffered like. Totally different perspective. If, by, by any means, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He's saying, this is a whole different, this is worth it. Everything I did for myself, rubbish. Knowing Christ, oh, that's everything. It's everything. All the difference in the world. Nebuchadnezzar missed a very important lesson from the vision. The message for him should have been, you, King Nebuchadnezzar, are only great because God made you great. And he has also chosen to make you not so great. He has also chosen to deconstruct everything you've put together. You need to submit to the God who sets up eternal kingdoms. That should have been the message to Nebuchadnezzar. That was the message to Nebuchadnezzar. But he missed it. He missed it because he put the glory that was due to God and he gave it to people instead. He gave it to himself instead. And it's all about an eternal 
perspective. And if you think that Christians are, are not going to fall into the same thing, and we're not going to be impressed by even the, the disciples. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to go through it pretty quickly. But in, in Mark chapter 13, we read this. Then as he, talking about Jesus, went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. One of the disciples, I don't know, if it, if it had been me, I would be glad that he doesn't name the person right here. What was impressing this disciple of Christ? Wow, the magnitude and the glory of the buildings. Wow, Jesus, look at this. Imagine telling Jesus, the creator of the universe, hey, you got to see something that's really cool. Look, look what man did. Look what these people built. And Jesus is thinking, oh, man, you have no idea. The planets that I have created that I can show you someday. Verse 2. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Oh, disciple, you're getting impressed by the wrong things. You're impressed by the things that people do. Everything that, all of these things are going to be torn. Not a single stone is going to be left in place. You don't get it. Nothing you do, nothing you build, nothing you create, nothing you construct will last forever. Only the kingdom that Jesus was setting up was going to last forever. Be a part of that. That's what he was getting at. Be a part of this eternal kingdom. That's what the vision was all about. This stone that's not, not cut by human hands is going to come up and it's going to smash all of these kingdoms. But then, that, that's the bad news. The good news is he's going to start a new kingdom that's going to last Forever that is founded on the rock, which is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. By the way, this is why I believe in the New Testament when, when, uh, when uh, Jesus says, Peter, on this rock I shall build my kingdom. Peter was not the rock. Jesus was the rock. He was saying, Peter was the first one to recognize. He said, you are the Messiah. The, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was the first one to recognize that. And, he, and Jesus this is the rock on which I will build my kingdom. Not you, Peter. I think there's a whole denomination that is built on worshiping men because of that foundation right there. It's worshiping God instead of worshiping men. I'll tell you what, my, my uh, prayer for you today is that you'd respond to the invitation today. First of all, if there's anyone in here today that you'd say, you know what, everything I've done in my life is rubbish by this scale. Everything I've done because I don't know Jesus Christ yet. I don't have that personal relationship with him. Then I'm going to ask you to come forward. I'm going to ask you to come and talk to me. And I'm going to, and I'm going to introduce you to somebody who can take God's word and show you for, for, for certain how you can know from scripture that you're going to have eternal life. Amen? I'm also going to invite you, if you know for sure, you've already made that decision, I'm going to invite you to come forward. If you know that there are things in your life that, that are impressing you, that you need to change your perspective and start looking at things from an eternal perspective. If maybe you're working, working 60, 70, 80 hours a week so that you can build your kingdom. And God's telling you today, don't put your emphasis there. Have a relationship with me. Don't build your own kingdom. Be a part of the eternal kingdom. Build into that. 
In fact, in that, nothing you do is going to build into that. He uses you. We are the building blocks of that kingdom. Be a part of that. And if, if there's a, uh, anything in your heart that you need to say, you know what, today I lay this before the altar. I'm, I'm, giving the, I'm surrendering this over to God because this has been an idol to me. Then I'm going to ask you to just come forward and just pray. We won't interrupt you. We won't bother you. And I'm going to give you a chance to do that. But as we, I'm going to pray for, for, for you and then we're going to sing, uh, come just as you are. I'm going to ask you to respond in one of those two ways. However, the Lord's working in your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that you have given us the gift of being a part of something divine, a part of something bigger than ourselves. But Lord, we have to get past our own kingdom building right now. Lord, if there's anyone in here right now that has never accepted your son as their Lord and Savior, I pray that right now would be that moment. Lord, I was overjoyed to hear of someone who made that decision last week. Right from hearing... Your message taught right here through our kids. Lord, I pray if there's anyone else that we could have that turning point take place right here, right now. And Lord, I know that many of us have idols. And we need to confess those to you right here, right now. Lord, I pray that you work in our hearts. And Lord, I know that right now the fear of men is the one thing that might keep us in our seats. All of these things, well, I wonder what people will think of me. If I get up, people, people will think down, and that, Lord, that's the sin itself right there. Help us to overcome that sin. And worry not what other people think about me. We would only worry about what you think about us. I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit right now to work in our hearts and convict us of sin. And I pray this in Christ's name.